plenty of room. Hey, good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you. I'm going to slide this over so I can be, because I'm going to knock it over. That's definitely going to happen. Awesome. Everything is going so well so far. Look at that. We take it. Thank you so much, everybody. Awesome to be with you. Happy to be with everybody online at home. I hope you're in your pajamas and comfortable and you've got a giant cup of coffee or cocoa or tea or something going on because that's how we roll. Any of you guys that don't know me, I'm Doug. I'm one of the pastors here. It is awesome to be with you. I'm super excited to bring God's word this morning as we gather together. And there are so many exciting ways that we have right now to be serving our community and re-engaging the lives of others around us in need. Uh, please let me know how and if you're able to get in touch with Family Promise. Uh, we're hoping just to really be present with them and those families in any way that we can. Uh, there are some wonderful opportunities. When we say virtual support, there are actually ways to be present too in person. When it talks about doing meals and dropping off meals, you can actually schedule time with individual families. We could, if we wanted to, if there were enough people at uh, our church that would like to host these families for like a Sunday afternoon meal, we could schedule that, bring them here, entertain them, host them, feed them, care for the children that are there, because there are four single moms uh, with nine children. And uh, what an amazing blessing it could be if we wanted to rally around them, even for the short time that we have that space and opportunity. Mentorship opportunities, if there are those of you who are feeling a burden to invest in the lives of younger people, you can go and physically be present with a student who might be struggling or in, struggling or in need of additional support. So if you're hearing this, if it's sort of nudging or, or sort of uh, you know, having a light bulb go on, let me know. And uh, I'm sure there are a multitude of ways that we can invest uh, in these families in a new and exciting way uh, in this season of relaunching Family Promise. Uh, and also, sky's the limit. The volunteer coordinator of Jocelyn was like, hey, we're wide open to ideas. If you have an idea in mind, a way that, that we can invest, we can uh, come alongside these families. If you have some entrepreneurial energy to dedicate to that, uh, they're wide open to those suggestions too. And so um, please, 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 let's keep that, that spirit and that energy flowing, particularly as we head into the holidays. These can be trying times uh, emotionally, and uh, I think it would be an amazing, amazing chance for us uh, to bring an added blessing. Okay, enough about that. So we're continuing our series this morning on American idols, trying to pick and choose subjects, ideas, concepts, uh, where maybe we as Americans are a little susceptible to creating idols. And we've defined an idol um, using something that Tim Keller has said, it's a good thing that's become an ultimate thing. And what I love about this definition is that when we think about idols, we think about all the negative things, right? We think about all the bad stuff, right? Seven deadly sins, and we think, oh yeah, you know, of course, avoid those things, good job. But idols actually are really sneaky. And I say that they're often subterranean, they're below the surface, they're not easily perceived, right? They sometimes reside deep within your own heart, 
going after our motives and over, over stuff that's on the inside of us that we cannot plainly see. We may even be blind to those things, right? We may not let other people around us know about those hidden struggles or those hidden feelings and thoughts that we wrestle with. And so idols are typically things that are good, things that we should celebrate that have proper place in our lives, that are important, and yet we take them and we make them just bigger than they're supposed to be. Right? They become larger in our lives, a bigger priority, a bigger focus in our lives and in our hearts than they're intended to be, and they lose their place. And once that begins to happen, things can slowly become an idol over time. And so today we're going to approach one of those idols and it's, uh, it's an unpopular one, but I think it's so important for us to talk about as Americans. We're going to talk about money and wealth and possessions and how those things can easily and sometimes kind of perniciously dig into our lives and become something that uh, drives us more than it's intended to. And we've been kind of riffing off something that John Mark Comer, theologian, said about idols. These are deceptive ideas. Like lies that play to disordered desires, something inside of us, right, that are normalized in a sinful society. So this is what allows idols to kind of, you know, perpetuate, propagate in our society because they're easy. They're deceptive ideas, lies, lies that we're, we easily believe, partly because we want to believe them. We have these disordered priorities, disordered desires. So usually when something is pitched to us, it's pitched to us in such a way that it taps into something that we actually want, right? That's usually when we're in the most trouble, when it taps into something within us that easily wants to respond in an unhealthy way. And then it's normalized in society. Yeah, everybody is doing that. No big deal, right? And so we just go along with the flow and we feel like it's okay. Okay, so we're talking about money this morning. Let's jump into God's Word. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to kind of do a flyover, and then we'll try to bring this home. But let's pray. Let's pray and ask the Lord just to, to speak, as Andre was saying, that we would have ears to hear, that we would listen as well. Heavenly Father God, we just give you thanks this morning for just a beautiful gathering of your people. What a beautiful privilege, as Andre so rightly mentioned for us to gather in this comfortable, cool space. I ask, Lord, that you would come in the midst of this space and that you would remove every distraction, you would remove any, any barrier, any impediment to just being present with you for the time that we have together, that you would remove our thoughts about the game that's happening later today or the activity that we've got scheduled or the thing that we've got to rush off to, and that you would attend our hearts and our minds to you in worship in this short bit of time that we've uh, set aside to honor you this morning. And God, would you meet us uh, in that space? Would you honor our desire to be in your presence this morning, particularly as we talk about a subject that can at times be uncomfortable, Lord? So we welcome you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So we're talking about money. We often confuse money and wealth with uh, flourishing, right? We think about uh, money and possessions with having true prosperity 
in our lives, we can get those things a little bit mixed up. And the truth is that you can have it all and have nothing. And you can have relatively nothing and be rich. We see that happen every day. We aspire to those intrinsic things around us. You can have it all materially and still feel empty. And you can have an empty house or an empty place and not have many things and yet have a rich and fulfilling life in all the ways that matter most. So the Bible and, I think, life teach us that there are a few things that have the potential to kind of wreck us and misshapen us more than a distorted view about money and possessions. And so we're just going to kind of use as a jumping off point Paul, who drops some wisdom on his younger protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires and plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. Right? And we don't want to get too technical with this introductory passage. The root of all kinds of evil, it's a root, right? Money is not the root of evil. It's often misquoted uh, in our lives. And a lot of people who are eager for money have wandered from the faith. And it doesn't mean that they've lost their salvation or somehow are no longer now following Jesus, but they wander from the faith. And if we think about the faith as like a path, it's a road that we're all on together, right? And it's easy to step off that path because we get distracted by something else. It's sort of like when you're driving down one of those two-lane highways and there's no little bumpy things on the side of the road and it's not divided and you're just driving along and somebody says, wow, look over at that. And if you're like me, you turn your head and you look over and instantly the car starts drifting over that way because where the head goes, the car goes. Right? It's kind of how it is. Because I'm one of those people that when you're walking next to somebody and you're talking to them, they're like, hey, why are you walking into me? It's because I'm looking at you. <laughs> That's how it goes, right? We turn where our eyes go and somehow it leads us off the path that we're on. That's what we're describing. People who love money, and I would argue that this is an over-desire. This is something good that's turned into something ultimate. It's when I take something in my life that's supposed to be in proportion, and it's supposed to be normalized, and all of a sudden it starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger in my eyes, and that's when I can wander from the path. Right? Hugely important for us, because we're surrounded by all of these weird, deceptive ideas. Right? We're constantly being... Uh, spoken to these narratives about money, and they're not necessarily true. One of them you hear is like, money is the goal of life. You heard that before? Right? People come into their working lives and they think, I just want to make as much money as I can. That's what they've got in their minds. I want whatever job, whatever opportunity I can have that's going to make me the most money that I can make. And they have these ideas in their head. I want to make as much money as possible. He who dies with the most toys wins. Right? Maybe that's grown out of fashion. Maybe I'm dating myself, but I've heard that so many times. He who dies with the most toys wins. And I'm like, wins what? What are you winning? Right? And I follow that up with my other favorite line. There's no U-Haul behind the hearse. Right? No tow hitch on that bad boy. 
right? And you can't take it with you. And I suppose you could, but this really be unpractical and probably very expensive. You can't take it with you, right? The second lie is that money is the key to our security, right? We hear the phrase, I just want to be financially stable. I want to have financial independence. I want to be able to make it on my own. I hear this from couples all the time who are dating for a really long time. I'm like, hey, man, what's going on over here? Why aren't we pulling the trigger? And they always say, oh, I'm just waiting until I'm financially secure. And I'm like, well, I hate to break it to you. I'm 47, and I'm still trying to figure out what it means to be financially secure. You might not wait, want to wait around exactly for that particular thing to fall into place. But this is such a deeply held understanding within our society. It's kind of built into our notions of what it means to make it. And they prey on our desires, our insecurities, and maybe some of our fears. And so the question that we asked this morning is, how can I be shrewd, honest, and self-aware when it comes to money? How do I go about doing that? Three things that we're going to try to unpack. One is you've got to know the power of money. Money is a powerful thing. We're going to find out here in a moment that it's not all bad. In fact, a lot of it's very, very good. So we've got to kind of hold that in balance, good into ultimate, right? And then you have to know the reasons for why money is so powerful. We've got to get underneath the surface of maybe what's going on here. Why does this thing tick the way that it does? And then we've got to try to figure out how to break the power of money. How do we break the power of that pursuit in our lives? We'll unpack that a little bit as well. So first things first, what is the power of money? The Bible has so much to say about money. It's actually really shocking. It's pretty shocking how much the Bible has to say. One-sixth of the Gospels, one-third of the parables in the New Testament are about money. You know Jesus spoke more about money matters than he did about heaven and hell combined? How we handle money or how we deal with money is, was more important to him, at least in terms of you know, the taxonomy of, of language, than, than heaven or hell. New Testament has 500 verses on prayer, fewer than 500 verses on faith, stalwarts of what we believe. Check this out. 2,350 verses dedicated to money and possessions. Right? It's not even close. So this is a significant topic within the scriptures. What we discover, like I mentioned before, is that a great deal of it is good. has so much good to say about the power of money that we can honor, that we can celebrate in our faith. Listen to a couple of these. Proverbs 12, 24 says, Diligent hands will rule. The laziness ends in slave labor. Right? Proverbs, again, dropping more wisdom. 10, 5 says, He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who keeps sleeping during harvest is a disgraceful son. It's like, come on, son, get up. It's time to go to work. Again, 10.22, the blessings of the Lord brings wealth. Promises of beautiful reward without painful toil for it. Right? We'd love that if it weren't so hard. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And these are our spiritual as well as material blessings. Seek the kingdom and all the other stuff that you are pursuing in your life fall into place in their given order and priority. And maybe this begs the question for us as we look at 
all of the scriptures, if you Google this and just look it up, there's so much in the scriptures about it. Why does the Bible have such a strong, beautiful message about uh, money and possessions? Maybe more so than any other uh, religion that we can think of. And I think the answer lies partly if we go back to the beginning, if we go back to Genesis, right? And think about that picture of Adam in the garden, Eve in the garden, given, you know, dominion, given responsibility over the garden. Come and eat, come and, and lead and serve and coexist with all of these beautiful animals. The Genesis tells us that we become co-heirs. We become participants, stewards, even owners to some degree of the land around us. And our future eternal kingdom is a re-initiation of that life, right? That's part of the Christian gospel. We are called to be stewards and owners and tenders and caregivers, right? to the world around us, to the material world. Not so with other religions. The Greeks believed that the material world was a corrupted shadow. The Eastern religions believe that the material world is an illusion and that part of escaping the vicious cycle of human suffering is to decrease and remove ourselves from attachments to that material world that is an illusion. Northern European belief is that the world is an accident from some sort of kind of ancient cosmic incident that happened. And so only in Genesis, only in Christianity, do we see the world was something to be enjoyed and that man was put here uh, in the garden to enjoy and to thrive and to flourish in the midst of a redeemed physical world. Are you with me? So if we're owners, if we are participants, then everything that we do with respect to the material world in this life and in the next matters to some degree. Are you with me? It's not like, hey, you know, do all the things you want to do because when you're gone, you're gone and it's over. There's sort of this sense that something is going to matter into eternity about the life that we lead here. And there's something about wealth and possessions and reward that comes with us. And that's somehow the result of how we operate in this life that we can look forward to in a very good and appropriate way. So the Bible's super positive. I just want to drop this thought because it's been rattling around in my brain. I don't know if I'm going to get to it. It probably will annoy you. But juxtapose this notion of, you know, reward and hard work and diligence and God's blessing. Just juxtapose that for a hot second with the American ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And we can see how biblical notions of hard work, honesty, integrity, and blessing that flow right from the Bible verses that we read and more come together into some kind of conflation Conflation of God's dream and the American dream. You follow me? We run this weird risk as Americans. I think particularly as immigrants, we feel this pull to the American dream that brought us here. To live into a kind of flourishing and a kind of blessing that makes God's dream for us and the American dream that we wish for ourselves 
and for our children uh, one and the same thing. And I'm not entirely sure that that's true. In fact, I think it gets us into a little bit of trouble at times when we think about American idolatry when it comes to wealth and possessions. But that's not exactly what this sermon is about. I want to drop that so that it can annoy you too, because it has annoyed me all week as I have wrestled with this notion. So I offered you my shared annoyance. So do you see it? We're not just cogs in a great money machine, even though it feels like that most of the time. Heirs and owners of the world, and the more invested we are, the more that we own what we're doing, the greater the sense of care that we experience for it. There's something about this that is utterly good. And I'm reminded of my first car, which I loved. But looking back on it, it was such a piece of junk. But I tell you what, it was my piece of junk. It was my 1990 Nissan 240SX SE Fastback. And it was dented, and there was Bondo holding that thing together, but it was mine. It was mine. And I remember taking such good care of that piece of junk because I thought to myself, this is my piece of junk. And I would get in there and I would wash this car. And washing a car is not like what it was when I was washing my parents' car as a kid. Washing a car at this age, I was in college when I got my first car. I loved this thing. I would get in there with Q-tips and brushes and vacuum cleaners. And I got the black magic and the armor all for the tires. And we're wiping this thing down with diapers. This is how desperate I was. We didn't want to leave streaks. We didn't want to scratch the car. ShamWow was not good enough for my POJ. So what I did is I went out and bought baby diapers. Because this is what you did in the early 90s with your POJ car, is you wiped this thing down with baby diapers. And that's how you washed your car. And I have friends to this day who wash their cars with filtered water because they don't want to leave spots on their black car, right? So Dave knows what I'm talking about. When your heart is in it, right, some of you motorheads are like, yes, of course, why would you not do that, right? Anyway, all the things are happening when washing the car, and there was a tremendous sense of ownership. There was so much love. It would take me hours and hours to meticulously wash this car. And people are like, what are you doing? This is crazy. Your car is crap. <laughs> and I would say, no, no, no. Don't talk to her that way. That's not nice, right? And my wife will attest, she slept in that car because she'd fall asleep every time I'd take her somewhere. And she sat in that car, and she can attest to what kind of a piece of junk this car was but surprisingly comfortable, apparently. Yeah, easy to nap in. So the scriptures are so positive about the power of money, but it does not shy away from the danger. And this is where the good becomes great. Are you with me? It's something good that's to be celebrated, that's supposed to be wanted, embraced, to have its appropriate place in our lives. It's when we kind of get it out of proportion. When good turns into ultimate that we enter into what is also described as kind of an over-desire. When our actions and our behaviors start to get a little distorted, are you with me? We get a little crazy about our stuff. Proverbs 10 goes back again, 15 and 16. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. Hang on to that verse. We'll come back to it later. 
The wages of the righteous bring them life, again, good, but the income of the wicked brings them punishment. This notion of righteousness and wickedness that we must hold in tension in our own hearts. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? That's a challenging question. What is it worth? What is it worth? Your soul, your integrity, your sense of yourself. No one can serve two masters. I'll, you, either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, 24. So this clear warning, right? If we make money an idol, it sends us to ruin. Bad things happen, not just externally, but internally. How does that happen? Right? Four simple ways. We're going to go really fast over this. Money has the power to mess with your integrity. To really mess with who you are. The core of your identity is, is sort of the, the sense of yourself. That strong sense of who you are as a person. Proverbs 11.1 1 says, The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. There's a sense of how we operate as business people in commerce in the world and this exchange of money which is designed to be a good thing in our lives has something to do with how we are. It is an expression of who we are. You can have great integrity, but it's amazing how in the presence of money you can be tempted into moral ethical failure. Right? Uh, I've, I've shared this before, but I, I love it so much. I'll share it again. 1991, James Patterson, a guy named Peter Kim, wrote a book. It's the day America told the truth, what people really believe about everything that really matters. And I would really love to see this uh, survey. I'd love to know how this survey was written because here's what they said. What would you be willing to do? And this is $1991 for $10 million, right? Tack on all the inflation you want, right? How much is that going to cost? $10 million, still kind of a lot of money. Listen to this list. 25% of the people who responded said that they would abandon their entire family. Right? I think there are people who would do this for much less. <laughs> but we're talking, about, we're talking about sort of deceptive ideas coming after sort of deceitful desires or something inside of us, right? You're going to give $10 million to somebody who wants to leave for free, maybe, is what's going on, right? There's something broken that we're tapping into. This is when everybody's telling the truth. 25% would abandon their church, right? Any takers? No, I'm kidding. You don't have to. I've got 10 million, you know, Bitcoin for you. 23% of them would prostitute themselves for a week. That's pretty rough. 16% would give up their American citizenship. 16% would leave their spouses. 10% would withhold testimony about a murderer. I mean, these are not small infractions. $10 million. 7% would kill a stranger. I hope this was anonymous, because if they know who these people are, we've got to say something, right? Mandatory reporting. 3% would put their children up for adoption. And that's a sad indictment. We joke about that, right? I can joke about that. Here, you guys are safe. It's okay. <laughs> but I, I know she's like, no, Dad, don't do it. You know, but sadly in America, having children 
is a part of a kind of commerce. I'm not talking about trafficking. I'm just talking about the way the systems are designed in our country and in those of other countries. Children up for adoption or giving them away is not a foreign notion uh, to people in those desperate situations and in that world. But you can see, right, how money, this fleeting thing, causes people to do whack things that they may or may not have ever thought about until they read a survey and said, nah, I'm going to check that box. It has the power to destroy our integrity. It has the power to destroy community. Proverbs 11.26, it says, People curse the man who hoards grain, but blessing crowns him who is willing to sell. And this is a situation where we're talking about uh, a shortage of food. There's a food shortage in the land. And there's a person who is not being honest, who's saying, I'm going to withhold my sales because I want to drive the price up. Does this sound familiar? Is this happening thousands of years later? Right? I've got a, there's a limited supply of something. Everybody's going to want it. Supply and demand is working in my favor because I've got supply and you've got demand. And I'm going to drive the price up and I'm going to withhold sales. I'm going to hoard. I'm going to keep it to myself. And God says that person is cursed. They may make, they may make money now. They might line their pockets in this instance, but in the long term, they will suffer greatly, right? So what is, the prover what is Proverbs condemning? A business that only has a bottom line, that stops worrying about people in the midst of real-life circumstances, something that maybe we wrestle with in our modern era as we participate in larger organizations that have an impact and have practices and have philosophies and approaches. Everybody's got a bottom line. No one wants to be ignorant or naive about that reality, but how we get there matters in the end, the scriptures teach us. One of the things I came across that was really uh, kind of interesting and a bit alarming was an article by a guy named Paul Krugman. He wrote for the New York Times back in 2002, wrote an article called For Richer, and he talks about executive pay, how executive pay in this day and age can be 10 to 100 times what the lowest uh, person in an organization makes. And he was remarking on how before World War II, executive pay could never be more than 50% or maybe 100%. So we're talking about 150 to double what the lowest person was making. It could never be more than that because if it were, there would be tremendous outrage. There would be an uprising within the organization because that would be construed as unjust and criminal in some ways. And he writes this in an article. He says, again, it's a matter of corporate culture. For a generation after World War II, fear of outrage kept executive salaries in check. Now, the outrage is gone. Now that, oh, that is, the explosion of executive pay represents a social change rather than the purely economic forces of supply and demand. We should think of it not as a market trend like the rising value of waterfront property, but as something more like the sexual revolution of the 1960s, a relaxation of old strictures, a new permissiveness. But in this case, the permiss permissiveness is financial rather than sexual. 
Sure enough, John Kenneth Galbraith uh, described the honest executive of 1967 as being one who eschewed the lovely, available, and even naked woman by whom he is intimately surrounded. By the end of the 1990s, the executive motto might as well have been, if it feels good, do it. Isn't that fascinating? People make more money because people think it's okay to make more money. The Bible is looking at this and condemning uh, maybe normal business practice in our day and age. And money apart from wisdom has the power to make you think that that's okay. Right? The injustice that we feel around that. Right? And if that makes you uncomfortable, then maybe it, maybe it ought to. Right? Has the power to destroy your integrity. Has the power to destroy community. It has the power to distract you from what's really important. Proverbs eleven four: Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. There's no U-Haul behind the hearse, friends. We think about those end-of-life questions. A lot of you know I work as a hospital chaplain, and I would say about forty percent of my time is spent with people who are at the end of life who are wrestling with those real questions, new diagnoses, real stuff is going on. And you meet people from all walks of life. And I'll tell you one thing I've never heard in the last two and a half years of doing this. I've never heard somebody say, I wish I worked more. And I've never heard somebody say, I wish I made more money. Almost always, the life equation at the end of life has to do with people. Family, friends, sometimes it's a bucket list. I wish I had gone somewhere. I wish I had traveled more. I wish I had done something that they had always dreamed about doing, but life, unfortunately, and illness and tragedy get in the way, interrupt our best laid plans. And this became really salient one day, because I remember playing golf. I was playing golf. Uh, I had just started playing golf again. Golf was a complicated sport for me after my dad passed away, and I decided to go out and play, and I was pleasantly surprised that I still enjoyed the game. So I went out and played one day, and I was out by myself, and I got to play with a couple of really old lawyers and a guy who was a retired bailiff, Korean guy, just turned 60. And he was pretty young and spry, and he was asking me these questions, and all of a sudden, you know, around the 10th or 11th hole, it comes out, oh, I work as a hospital chaplain, I'm pastor, blah, blah, blah. And he starts to ask me, it's like, so, you know, tell me about that. What is that about? You know, what do people talk about, you know, when they're facing life and death situations? And I said, well, they talk about this and this and this. And I talked about family, and I talked about relationships. And he sat there, and he thought about it for a couple of holes. I could tell it was bothering him. And he comes over to me, and he sits down while we're waiting. And he sits under this tree, and he says, you know, I've got this brother that I haven't talked to in a really long time. And he starts confessing to me how he treated his brother really badly growing up because he was the older brother and he beat up on this younger brother. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe, you know, you know is he still around? Maybe you could call him. And he's like, oh, no, it'd be, it'd be awkward. It would be difficult. And I said, well, you know, that's okay. Sometimes awkward, difficult things can be really good. I think it would mean a lot to him if you called. And he says, you know, I think I'm going to do that. And this happens from time to time in pastor land, by the way. Random people make weird confessions to you in awkward places. <laughs> and so I'm going to go over here and hit my golf ball, and we can continue this conversation later. Right. But we realize what really matters in the end, money can distract us from what's really important. 
working too much, too hard, giving our lives, even our souls, to the pursuit of a job or to making money. And I realize, again, I'm not naive about the reality of those pressures and those requirements, but we have to pay close attention to the gauge of what it costs and what is the benefit. Maybe there's a different way to approaching that question. I think it also leads to a kind of pride. If we look at the bottom, we go back to this. Proverbs 30. Listen to what this says. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise... I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. What a fascinating call for contentment. Right? Just give me what I need. If I have too much, I might forget about you. And if I have too little, I might dishonor your name because who knows what I will do in that desperate moment. And maybe if you begin to rely more on your own inflated sense of your understanding than your conventional wisdom of God. A guy named Michael Sandel, another great read, wrote a book called The Tyranny of Merit. This is another thing that's been wrapping around in my brain. And he talks about this as meritocratic hubris. When we think we've earned it and we deserve it. Wealth seemed to become an entitlement rather than a blessing, he says. Hedge fund managers, Sandel's poster children for meritocratic hubris, concluded that they deserved those seven-figure bonuses. Right? And we saw that during the crash in 2007, 2008. Companies that were declaring bankruptcy somehow had funds to offer their executives massive bonuses uh, during a time of collapse when people were literally losing their homes and being cast out into the street. The language of entitlement, I think, has invaded our culture so much so that we should be careful to defend against it. Amen? The idea of entitlement, the notions of deserving, this idea of being owed something. We see those words drifting around in the language of our society as Americans. So let's unmask this for a second. We're coming in for, uh, toward the end here. Why does money have so much power over us? Why in America, and maybe dare I say here in the South Bay, is money so powerful? What is the hook that it's got inside of us? Proverbs 18, 10 to 11. We're coming back to this. It says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. Isn't that a picture? Cities were the ultimate place of security. If you were in a walled city, you were safe from wild animals, attackers, from the weather, from vigilantes. Cities were the major and primary source of security and significance. But notice what it says here. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. Right? This is the great danger, friends when we get down to brass taxes. Wealth is our security and significance outside of God. There is no better substitute for significance and security than our wealth. 
Nothing in America keeps us safer and more secure feeling and more insulated from our own vulnerability than our relative wealth and our possessions. I think that's a true statement. And the reality is we all do this. We all do it. Statistically, we all do it. Why? Because we're here and we live around here. We just got to own that, right? The fact that we're here and that we live around here means that this is a part of the fabric of our lives. So how do we go about breaking this? How do we break the power of money in our lives to keep it in a healthy place at bay, one, we've got to assume that we're in denial. I think that's a safe assumption. We've got to assume this is a problem, right? You've got to assume that it's an issue and get ready for it. One of the ways that we have to approach this is we have to start weighing the difference between want and need. I think these things are a little messed up in the American way. Right? I wrestle with this all the time. Right? Want and need. I got a ton of things I definitely don't need. I have a garage full of things I don't ne- necessarily need. Right? And I wrestle with that all the time. I stand in front of that garage and I consider to myself, I'm either going to have a garage sale or I'm just going to rent a, a giant dumpster and we're just going to have you know, a sale or just throw things out. And my wife gets really upset because the instant I throw something out, the next day we're going to need that thing, right? (laughs) Doesn't matter how obscure it is, the instant I throw it out is the thing that the cosmos says, now you're going to need, you know, your melon baller suddenly, right? I think one of the answers that we have to hold on to scripturally is this beautiful, simple, elegant principle, and it's the idea of scattering and gathering. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 11. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. We just sit with that and go, wow, what is that about? The principle is simple. Scattering gathers, and gathering scatters. It doesn't make any sense unless you're in an agrarian society, right? If you're a farmer, this makes perfect sense. If you grew up on a farm, you're like, yep, I get it, right? It comes back to you, right, in general, in a better and more beautiful and often more usable form than when it went out. You're imagining the scattering of seed, right? We have to be careful now. This is not about the more you give, the more you get, right? Because that's actually gathering. You've got to be careful about that. Harvesting. We have to think about Distribution. What am I invested in as a follower of Jesus in this day? How am I using my resources, not just my financial resources, but my possessions, my relative power, my time, my energy, which I would argue are more precious than anything you could possibly buy or possess or own? How am I investing those aspects of my person and my identity into the world around me? How am I scattering myself 
into my community. And I'm not talking about world hunger. I'm not talking about solving war. I'm not talking about calamity. Let's stay away from the huge, giant problems of humanity that often arrest us from actually doing anything productive. What am I doing right in my neighborhood, whether somebody sees it or not, whether it's organized or impromptu, whether it's regular or ad hoc, how am I contributing and participating in the benefit of others around me based on my relative wealth, power, position, and time? Are you with me? Scattering gathers. And I do that with people that I cannot expect something back from. These folks can't pay me back which is kind of the way I like it, right? Because it always feels weird when you do somebody a favor and then they turn right around and give it back to you because it sort of changes the way this whole thing happens. Now it becomes like commerce. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about scattering and gathering. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and we'll wrap with this thought. I'm not commanding you but I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that through, though he was rich, yet for his sake he became poor, for your sake rather, he became poor, so that through his poverty, that you through his poverty might become rich. As is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. What do you think Paul is talking about here? Jesus is like the ultimate example of the scattering gathers idea. Jesus distributed himself in the most beautiful way so that you and I, from our wanderings, can be gathered together. It's the only reason we're here, by the way. We've been gathered. We've been gathered to this place, maybe geographically and through proximity. But the only reason we worship is because Jesus scattered himself. Amen? And one of those particles of Jesus that got scattered to wherever it was, whether it was your home or the place that you grew up or camp or some mountaintop place out in South Korea, November 27th, 1992, the scattering of Jesus gathers us. Amen? And so that's the thought I want for us to hold as we have an opportunity and an invitation to come to the table as we laid hold of the body and blood of Jesus here in a moment together as gathered people. We are reminded that the broken body and the spilt blood of Jesus are the scattering of his identity into our community so that, friends, you and I can do the same, right? As little Christs to go and see what have you given me, Jesus, that I can scatter so that others might be gathered in your name and for your sake. Let's pray.